And one way to think about the season of Christmas is that though the world dwelled in darkness, the Lord sent light into the world to overcome the darkness. John, in his gospel, opens John's gospel this way. That light shone into the world. The opening verses talk about the word that was with God in the beginning, but that when God's word came into the world through the incarnation, it was as light shining and triumphing over the darkness. The narratives of Scripture prepare for this truth. The narratives of Scripture are filled with the stories of God triumphing, of the darkness settling like a gloomy cloud over some setting, over some group against the Israelites in the Old Testament. And over and over again, light shines in the darkness. It is pointing the way, preparing the way for the coming of Christ. When the promises of God seem to be threatened, the narratives of Scripture over and over again proclaim the triumph of His purposes. Those who align themselves against God find the supremacy and greatness and covenant of God to transcend any of their cleverness and malice. We proclaim that Jesus is the light of the world. We do so without reservation. We do so without needless qualification. We add that he as light of the world had been virginally conceived, lived without sin, died on the cross as a faithful substitute, rose victoriously on the third day, ascended into heaven, and he reigns as Lord of Lords. The message of the gospel is that light has triumphed over darkness. So when we see a text where a cloud of gloom and darkness seems to settle over a narrative, that seems to threaten God's faithfulness, that seems to put his promises into question, we've already been trained by the Bible. If we are attentive and faithful readers of Scripture, we know we shall wait upon the Lord. And what we will see is hope in God is not in vain. We wait upon the Lord and hope in Him and trust His ways and His mysterious providence. And in Numbers 22, something has settled over the people of Israel that they are not as privy to directly. In Numbers 22, there is a wicked king of Moab named Balak. He has deemed the Israelites a threat. He wants them to be cursed and weakened so that he can defeat them. He's like a new Pharaoh. Because in the book of Exodus, Pharaoh believed Israel to be a rising threat. And that if he didn't stop and thwart their fruitfulness and multiplying, they would no doubt ally themselves with one of Pharaoh's enemies fight against him. So here is a new Pharaoh on the scene. This guy Balak is in Moab. Not a Pharaoh of Egypt, but a Pharaoh-like figure. And he has also evaluated the situation and believes Israel seems too imposing. They had recently, in Numbers 21, triumphed over some other enemies that were already mightier than he was. So he just did the military math. If those people who are mightier than me fell to the Israelites, we in Moab do not stand a chance. And in Numbers 22 to 24, there's a series of chapters we enter into revolving around a pagan prophet named Balaam, who's hired by this very nervous king. Balaam is not an Israelite. He's not a worshiper of Yahweh. He's, he's basically a prophet for hire. You can promise him payment with some kind of initial installment to guarantee the remainder. And he will come and have prophetic or spiritual services to perform for the sake of you and your people. 
Balak does not believe he has the best military strategy, so he must engage the principalities and spiritual powers around him, he thinks. I will call upon Balaam. Balaam is apparently an internationally known prophet for hire because Balaam is not local. This isn't someone who's got like a house in Moab somewhere. He's hundreds of miles away to the east near the Euphrates River. This means if Balak says, I need that guy, then he's just calling the number that all the billboards say to call if you need someone who's a prophet for hire. And Balaam is going to arrive eventually. The reader is given a very front row seat to these conversations, and the spiritual questions include the following. What is going to triumph here? Is the strategy of Balak going to triumph as he uses Balaam for his purposes, or will the promises of Yahweh hold fast? Is the king's desire to curse Israel going to outmatch Yahweh's plan to bless Israel? But we've already been trained by the Bible to know exactly where this is heading. That God will prevail with covenant faithfulness and supremacy. And those who align themselves against his purposes and against his people will do so in vain. The reader ought at this point to have no doubt that Yahweh's mighty hand and outstretched arm will prevail over wicked King Balak and Balaam. The presence of these chapters here at this point in Numbers is intriguing and significant. They're in their 40th year of wilderness wandering. The location of the Israelites is on the eastern side of the Jordan River. They are very near their time of conquest under Joshua in the book of Joshua. It's going to be sooner rather than later. Things are so close. But here's something to notice about these three chapters at this point in the book. They do not revolve around Moses. Over and over again in the narratives, though, we expect him to be featured. But in Numbers 22, he's not. And in Numbers 23, he's not. And in Numbers 24, he's not. It's actually quite strange to have this leader who's been presiding over this Israelite nation for 40 years, that in a series of narratives, something revolves around someone else as a figure, a prophetic figure. What is this man, Balaam, going to do? He's not a worshiper of Yahweh, but we did see at the beginning of chapter 22 how he is pressured financially. And pressured with honor among men. His services are invoked using very worldly means. In the first part of Numbers 22, Balak has sent messengers to say, Come to us, we will pay you very well. But the Lord made known something to this pagan figure. The Lord said, You shall not go with them, you shall not go to curse the people. They are blessed. Though Balak thinks Balaam can just pronounce curses and weaken the Israelites so that they can then be conquered, things are not so simple because the living God has redeemed Israel, sustained Israel, and is going to give them the promised land. And Balak, try with all his might, though he may, will fail before the ancient Near Eastern armies and his own people. In, these first, in the first half of Numbers 22... Balaam has initially turned down the offer. And as far as he might know, the deal is done, closed. And I say done, negated, closed. It's not going to happen. But there's a knock at the door some days later. Balaam's messengers, Balak's messengers have returned. And Balak's messengers say, 
we will give you even more. Balak says, come and whatever you ask for is yours. That's a blank check if there ever was one. Balaam might be going through the Rolodex in his mind of the kinds of activities he's performed services for in spiritual senses and the money he's made and thought to himself, never has there been a bigger payday than this one, perhaps. And the appeal to him would have been no doubt very strong. So he says to the people who have come from Balak, let's take the night. Let me uh, hear and see if there's anything else the Lord says. What we're told at the end of the first half of Numbers 22 is that Balaam is going to go to the people. He's going to go with these messengers to Balak. And the reader is surprised at this turn of events because God had earlier said to him, you shall not go with these men. You shall not curse the Israelites. They are blessed. And then the Lord says in chapter 22 and in verse 20, if these men have come to call you, rise, go to them and do only what I tell you. We'll think about this tension that I think the text is intentionally introducing. In verse 22 through 27, Balaam's trip on his donkey is narrated. Verses 22 to 27. And it begins with the description of the Lord's anger. Does this surprise you as a reader? He has, he has uh, heard from the Lord of Israel. God had said, you shall not curse this people. God's anger was kindled because Balaam went. Could be translated while he went or as he was going, which might even be clearer here, to indicate that something has changed within Balaam. Earlier, what we were told are two commands that should be held together in verse 12. You shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people. For Balaam to go with those messengers would be for the intention of following through with Balak's direction. Curse the Israelites that they might be weakened and then I can defeat them. And the Lord said, you shall not go with them. You shall not curse them. If you can imagine uh, your children wanting to go somewhere with a group and they said, mom or dad, uh, we're wanting to go out and uh, we're going to this particular location. And you said, you, sh you are not going to go and you are not going to go to this particular place. Um, it, this, those two commands go together. The outing was associated with a particular activity. The Lord is going to permit Balaam to go as long as he does what the Lord tells him to do. The messengers don't have that plan. They want Balaam to come and do Balak's bidding. But that is not how this must go. Why might the Lord be angered? And then an angel of the Lord with a drawn sword begin to obstruct Balaam's path. I think the New Testament gives us some insight here. In 2 Peter 2, we're told that Balaam loved gain from wrongdoing and was rebuked for his transgression and a donkey restrained the prophet's madness. What inside Balaam might we reasonably imply that's going on? That any initial reluctance about going to Balak and cursing the Israelites has dissipated. And Balaam sees nothing but dollar signs before his eyes. And even though the Lord says, you shall go with these men and do only as I tell you, Balaam doesn't intend to do the second part. He intends to go with these men, but he is not a worshiper of Yahweh. He's not someone who walks in the fear of the Lord, seeking wisdom and to please God. He loves gain. 
And when gain is offered him, even though it's for wrongdoing, Balaam is willing to say, well, I will do this wrongdoing because look what I'm going to get. This is going to be a good payday for me. And he intends to go. This is probably what explains in in verse 22 and following the anger of the Lord and the obstruction of Balaam's path. Balaam needs not only to go to Balak physically, he needs to go with a certain mental and emotional posture of commitment to speak what God gives him to say. Balaam is not to that point yet. And it says, while he is going, God's anger is kindled. The angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as his adversary. Balaam does not see this. That's part of the humor of the story. Part of the humor of the story is here is a mighty seer in the ancient world who can't see what's right in front of him. But who can see it? The donkey he's riding on. And we smile at this as a reader, but of course to Balaam, none of this would have been funny. It would have been humiliating. That's part of the genius of the narrative. We smile as we read it because we're able to notice by the words here what's in the path. And Balaam doesn't see it. Though he's apparently some renowned seer with spiritual insight who's going to go pronounce things over a nation. And he can't see what's right in front of him. Well, it turns out that Balaam Balaam doesn't know everything he thinks he knows. He doesn't have the authority he thinks he has. He's unable to do the kinds of things he thinks he can do. He can't notice what's right in front of him. He's riding on this donkey. His two servants are with him. And we are told in 2 Peter 2 and in Jude 11 that Balaam was known for gain by wrongdoing. He was known by doing what was displeasing the Lord. I think it's reasonable for us as readers to see in Numbers 22, he's riding on this donkey with his two servants intending to gain from wrongdoing. So the angel of the Lord takes up a stand as an adversary. And we're told in verse 23, the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a sword drawn in his hand. An angel of the Lord with a sword drawn, an angelic figure with a sword, earlier occurs in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve are exiled from Eden. And cherubim with flaming sword are preventing their access. And the picture of an angel with a sword is a death threat. It is to say this is not to be an entrance that is uh, entered upon penalty of death. We're told in verse 23, the angel of the Lord has a drawn sword and the donkey sees it and moves. The donkey says, I'm not taking one more step that way. I'm going to this direction. And he turns, outside, turns aside out of the road and into the field. And Balaam strikes the donkey. Now the angel of Yahweh has acted as an adversary. And the donkey has responded accordingly. Don't test the angel with the sword. Now this verse reports for us that the donkey sees. The donkey then turns And then Balaam strikes the donkey. That pattern will be repeated. A donkey is going to see. 
The donkey is going to turn or do something, respond in some way, and then Balaam is going to strike. Now, Balaam's response is driven by instinct, but probably also anger. This is very frustrating. I mean, for crying out loud, they're on a path. And what's the donkey do? The donkey's like, well, here's a field. What if I just, you know, I mean, they're not even walking through a field. They're on a path. And if you're riding the donkey, this is not the better decision in your mind of going off into a field like this when you're heading this particular direction. So by going off course, this is no doubt very frustrating to Balaam. The striking is probably out of anger and instinct. And in verse 24, the angel of the Lord moves. This is now a second location. Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path between the vineyards. I would take this to mean in the area of the field. Here are some vineyards and here is this narrow path. The angel of the Lord takes a stand there with a wall on either side. What happens in verse 25? Those same three things. The donkey sees the angel of the Lord. Number two, she responds. And in this case, she pushes against the wall. Well, Balaam's feet are on one side and the other. That logically is going to imply that as the donkey presses against the wall, so will Balaam's foot. And I can't imagine that felt good. She presses his foot against the wall. And now, now he's not only frustrated, now he's hurt. Okay, so his foot has been pressed into the wall. That doesn't feel good. He strikes the donkey again. In verse 26, then the angel of the Lord went ahead and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn either to the right or to the left. You can imagine a funneling effect where whatever path the donkey has taken them on, it's increasingly, increasingly obstructed. And now she lay down under Balaam. In verse 27, the donkey can't go anywhere else, so just drops. The narration of this event is meant to make the reader smile. Because you see the donkey behaving this way. Balaam doesn't understand what's going on. He's trying to avoid the angel of the Lord. She lay down under Balaam and Balaam's anger was kindled. And we're not surprised that it's stated explicitly this way. We've been able to imply it already. He strikes the donkey with the staff. But this famous international seer is not able to discern what the donkey discerns. Part of the humor in this is the reputation of donkeys in the ancient world. A donkey in the ancient world was proverbially thought to be stupid and contrary. And here is a stupid and contrary animal, according to the ancient Near East, And Balaam can't see what his mule does. This doesn't bode well for Balaam's credibility. In verse 27, the donkey lays down under Balaam. His anger is kindled. He strikes the donkey with the staff. I want to pause for a moment to say the angel of the Lord seems to be obstructing Balaam's path because Balaam is not coming ready to do what the Lord will give him to say. The Lord has said to Balaam, go with these men and speak what I give you to say. But the anger of the Lord seems to be associated with Balaam's intent to do otherwise. So the angel of the Lord with the drawn sword is meant to obstruct the foolish prophet. Who according to 2 Peter 2.16 had madness that this donkey was working to restrain by God's grace. Balaam didn't realize this was God's grace at work in front of him. Sparing him from a foolish path heading to align himself against the Israelites with words and oracles proclaiming the people curse that God had blessed. 
Now, the danger of this is rooted all the way back in Genesis chapter 12, where God says to Abraham, the one who blesses you, I will bless, and the one who curses you, I will curse. It would be no smaller light thing for Balaam to go and pronounce curses over Israel. It would not be just a matter of him against Israel or even Balak of Moab against Israel. This is about knowing God or refusing God. Now, Balaam, the story picks up in verses 28 through 30 with one of the most surprising turns of events in all of the Bible. Then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey and she said, and even even right there, stopping right there for a moment, you just think, okay, am I ready for am I ready for this? Like what's about to happen? This this is taking us into a situation that doesn't feel like a normal narrative. The Lord opened the mouth of the donkey, huh? And she said to Balaam, what have I done to you that you've struck me these three times? Donkeys can count. This story, this story is not narrated as if it's part of any kind of prophetic dream or vision. So what I want to emphasize here are three points about this speaking donkey here that I think are helpful to know. Number one, God's power is highlighted in the opening phrase. You say, well, well, animals don't talk, and Balaam would know that. Absolutely he would know that, and we know that animals don't talk, which is what makes it miraculous when it happened. Uh, That's what made it seem so strange, because in verse 28, the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey. We are being prepared here for something of God, where the power of God is on display. This is not the result of some kind of normal happenstance or ordinary experience. Of course not. Rather, this text highlights the power of God by the opening phrase. Secondly, no visionary or dream state is reported. Which we know does happen on occasions when incredible things are described. Whether it's a Pharaoh who has a dream in Genesis or Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon who has a dream in the book of Daniel. There are things that can be revealed and described, even involving animal things representing something else symbolically in a visionary state. This is not a description of a visionary state, though. There's no clue or indication in the text that Balaam was in such a state. But then thirdly, the third and final point about this opening um, language, the New Testament confirms what we read here. We are told in 2 Peter... Chapter 2, a speechless donkey spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. So that's a later Bible talking about earlier Bible in 2 Peter 2.16. The speechless donkey, because of course we would not expect the donkey to have words. This speechless donkey spoke enabled supernaturally by God for words to restrain a crazy prophet who was going in his utter folly to do the unthinkable. So the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey and she said to Balaam, what have I done to you that you've struck me these three times? Balaam says to the donkey, because you've made a fool of me. 
Now, sometimes readers will say, why doesn't Balaam express any surprise here? It's just like he starts to have a back and forth conversation. Doesn't he think, wait a second, did I just hear a voice? You know, and he starts to talk to the donkey. I don't think we should imply that this wouldn't be surprising. The narratives don't always give us all the reactions that someone might have. I think instead we should assume that this was a very alarming experience. That would be a reasonable um, uh, and I think charitable read of the text. Balaam speaks to the donkey with an answer. What have I done to you that you've struck me these three times, the donkey asks. Balaam says, because you made a fool of me. I wish I had a sword in my hand, for then I would kill you. Well, the sword language is interesting because Balaam wishes he has one, but the angel of the Lord does have one. The angel of the Lord does have a sword, and Balaam says, well, if I had a sword, I would kill you. And the angel of the Lord will eventually say that if you kept going, I would kill you. And the donkey says to Balaam in verse 30, Am I not your donkey on which you've ridden all your life long to this day? Ah, so there's a familiarity and a relationship between the rider and the animal. This isn't some kind of new bond that's been formed. Okay, this isn't an animal of recent acquiring. This is instead someone Balak has ridden for many years. Ridden all your life long. And and the donkey says, is it my habit to treat you this way? In other words, Balaam, if we could just review our relationship together. Uh, It it seems that what you don't see me doing is departing from a path into a field and then between walls and pressing your foot against them and laying down under you. Like, that's not what you're used to. Is it my habit to treat you this way? And, of course, he must say, no, that's that's not your habit. But, But what is interesting is nothing is reported of Balaam asking the donkey, then why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? Which could suggest that not only is Balaam not asking the right questions, he's not seeing the right things anyway. Balaam's incompetence is on display. And the foil here is the donkey on which he's riding, prevailing over him with both sight and words. Now, notice here that God was angry with Balaam in verse 22. And Balaam is angry with the donkey. It is reasonable, as as, uh, different commentators will point out, to see that uh, the donkey isn't doing what Balaam wants, so he's angry. Balaam's actions were displeasing the Lord, provoking the anger of the Lord. And when Balaam arrives to King Moab, the king of Moab, he won't do what King Balak wants either. Numbers 22 and following includes a series of relationships where one person isn't doing what the other wants them to do. Balaam didn't leave with a heart ready to submit to the Lord. The donkey isn't doing what Balaam wants, and Balaam isn't going to do what Balak wants. Uh, However, I also want you to notice that the coming story about Balaam and Balak, when they are finally together, it maybe is foreshadowed here. For example, the donkey is resistant to Balaam, and it frustrates Balaam. In Numbers 23 and 24, Balaam resists the urgings of Balak, and it frustrates Balak to no end as well. And it doesn't just happen once or twice, but three times. Three times, the donkey resists Balaam, and Balaam resists Balak, that number of times at different locations as well. There is an oracle that comes after that, but changes in location are part of the story. So here's Balaam and a donkey, and the donkey's going here, and the donkey's going here, and the donkey's going here, and the donkey's resisting. 
Before these chapters are over, Balaam will be playing the part of the donkey. He will be resisting here and resisting there and resisting here. Because in the end, the Lord will open Balaam's mouth to proclaim blessing just as the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey. What we're reading about here, and Balaam wouldn't have known it at the moment, is that this is a story that's kind of preparing in a larger way what Balaam and Balak's relationship is going to look like. Balak is going to feel like he's dealing with a stubborn mule. Who did I bring over here from the Mesopotamian era to co- area to come and proclaim these things? He's not doing what I want. In verses 31 to 35, then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam. Which tells us again that we have the power and grace of the Lord revealing something to this pseudo-prophet. And he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his sword drawn in his hand. And boy, that's the game changer, isn't it? He bows down and falls on his face. He's no longer even on the donkey, right? And it wasn't even a fall. The donkey was already on the ground. So this was just more of a roll. And Balaam is on the ground. He's on his face. And the angel of the Lord says, Why have you struck your donkey these three times? So now the angel of Yahweh is going to ask the questions. Behold, I have come out to oppose you because your way is perverse before me. Ah, Balaam cannot hide his heart from the Lord. Though others may not know what Balaam has set out to do, the Lord knows. Your way is perverse before me, he says. Balaam is not someone who has been motivated by the honor of Yahweh, the glory of God, a fear of knowing God and walking wisely. That is not what Balaam is motivated by. He's motivated by getting gain through wrongdoing. In verse 33, the angel of the Lord says, The donkey saw me and turned aside before me these three times, and if she had not turned aside from me, surely just now I would have killed you and let her live. Well, Balaam here is getting a lot of information. This is a lot to take in in a short amount of time. Because donkey has spoken words given by God in a supernatural miracle. You have the angel of the Lord now visible to Balaam in some form or fashion. And Balaam realizes a threat had laid before him. And Balaam has been spared. Balaam did not perish, though he had deserved to perish. Balaam says to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned. For I did not know that you stood in the road against me. Now therefore, if it is evil in your sight, I will turn back. There is some kind of confession here. And we might quibble about parts of the words and think, you know, how genuine is it? You know, is he, is he just partly frustrated? Does he, does he uh, really say if it's evil in your sight when, of course, the Lord has opposed him and said his way is perverse? What do you mean, if it's evil? The angel of the Lord has already declared it such. I will turn back. Well, why not just submit to the Lord? Why say, I'll go back? Why not, why not simply say, I will do and say what all the Lord will give me to say, just as he told me I should do? Balaam does say, I have sinned. To some degree, Balaam believes and recognizes and confesses that what he was intending to do in the way that was perverse set out before him is something wrong. I've sinned. And I didn't know something. I didn't know that you stood against me. And if you're an international renowned seer starting a statement with, well, I did not know, that does not look good on your resume. And here Balaam here doesn't know something. He doesn't perceive something. 
And the angel of the Lord says, go with the men, but speak only the word that I tell you. Which again, coupled with this very strong warning and threat of death, ought to give Balaam all the remaining sustaining motivation he needs to not go with a plan to curse the people for money. But no matter what, show up there to King Balak and speak the words of God over the people of God. Go with the men, he says. Speak only the word that I tell you. So Balaam went on with the princes of Moab. Now the last part of this passage this morning ends with the arrival of Balak. When Balak heard that Balaam had come, he went out. And boy, this king has been waiting for a long time. The location of Balaam's home and the plains of Moab where Balak Balak is, these are not close in proximity. It would take many days, if not weeks of travel, for people who were his messengers to travel back and forth to receive and to convey uh, instructions and work negotiations. We should imagine that King Balak has been waiting for this moment for many weeks. And so when he hears that Balaam has come, he just drops whatever he's doing. And he rushes out. He goes when he hears Balaam has come. He goes to meet him at the city of Moab. A city called Ir Moab in the original language. A city in this location. And it's along the border of the Arnon River. At the extremity of that border. So at the edge of the Moabite territory. Balak makes this journey to go and receive Balaam. Balak says, didn't I send to you to call you? Why didn't you come to me? Am I not able to honor you? Now, we don't know all of the exchange that would have taken place, but here's what we at least know. Balak is convinced that the issue has simply been one of money. Why didn't you come? Why didn't you come to me? Am I not able to honor you? Balak, you can, also, you can almost hear a sense of he, he might feel offended by it. Insulted at the idea that Balaam would say, go to the king of Moab and, and receive whatever I want. Eh, and just kind of waving that off. And Balak thinking, what, do, you, do you not think I would be able to so honor you and so bless you and so pay you? It was that it? And of course, it's not that simple, is it? But for Balak, it's just about money. And the way Balaam has been operating, it's also been just about money. Balaam says in response in verse 38, Behold, I have come to you. Have I now any power of my own to speak anything? The word that God puts in my mouth, that must I speak. That's the lesson. There it is. Numbers 22 gives us this particular lesson here for Balaam to take away this point. Have I any power of my own? One thing that that recent encounter out in the field with vineyard walls on either side and a donkey beneath them, one of the things that that was to communicate is that the power belongs to God and not to Balaam. Balaam doesn't see what he thinks he sees. He doesn't know what he thinks he knows. Going against God is utter folly and destructive. The word that God puts in my mouth, that must I speak. That is his takeaway. And it is a good lesson. However, however, notice what he doesn't say to Balaam. I mean to Balak. Balaam doesn't say to Balak, so I'm not going to be able to curse the people because it turns out they're already blessed by God. So now that I'm here and I've traveled all this way and I've taken your money, I intend to bless the people. That conversation doesn't happen here. Would have been incredibly awkward at the moment, but that's going to come to the foreground soon. Balaam goes with Balak to a place called Kiriath Huzoth in verse 39. And in verse 40, there is some sacrifice of animals. This probably had two purposes. 
Sacrificing oxen and sheep. It doesn't just say he gave animals in order to feast. Though hospitality with the giving of domestic livestock was something that was common in the ancient world. And the king would have ample supply. You would not have to worry about uh, where you were going to get your next meal if you were being welcomed by the king into Moab. You would be taken care of. And here not only would you be amply supplied with food, but to sacrifice oxen and sheep has a spiritual connotation to it. Why is it that Balak would be engaging in sacrifice and inviting Balaam to join this as well? Balaam is with him. Balak sacrifices and he sends for Balaam and the other princes who were with him. This sacrificial act is more than just feeding him for the sake of hospitality. It is that, not just that. This is likely because Balak intends for the gods to bless their particular plan for the God of Israel to curse the people of the land at Balaam's insistence for the Israelites to be weakened and eventually dispossessed and destroyed. These sacrificial or spiritual actions probably have that kind of ritual intent, but no matter Balak's intent, he can pray to all the idols of Moab that he would want. He can sacrifice all the oxen and all the sheep that he would, none of which will ever cause him to prevail over Israel because God is for them. And if God is for them, who could be against them? You could put the Moabites at the other end of that scale. It would be in vain. You could put mighty Balaam, the international seer and renowned prophet, but for nothing as well. If God is for the Israelites, then nothing will stand. So in the morning, in verse 41, Balak took Balaam and brought him up to Bamoth Baal. That's a phrase that means the high places of Baal. Bamoth Baal. You even see the word Baal there in the second part of the phrase. The high places of Baal, these are elevated geographical locations, hills, mountains, where worship of the gods would take place on top. That's where Balak is going, and he's got Balaam with him. They're going to call upon their gods, but do all they might. Balaam will only be able to speak what the living God gives him to speak. One character who doesn't feature in this chapter is Moses. And it is surprising to us, as we thought about earlier, because of how much Moses is featured in the earlier narratives. And the reason that uh, Balaam is featured here over these stories is to almost portray him as an anti-Moses. And he is this prophetic figure of some reputation. But he doesn't know everything he thinks he knows, and he doesn't see everything he thinks he sees. He's also an anti-Moses because he's involved in the offering of sacrificing sheep and oxen on places of worship. But it's idolatrous. This isn't pleasing to the living God. The shadow of Moses does seem to fall upon this story. Notice that God was displeased with Balaam. That's where our story begins in verse 22. Earlier, however, God was also displeased with Moses. Moses struck something multiple times out of anger. And that event was not too far away from Numbers 22. In Numbers 20, in the same year, in the 40th year of Israel's wilderness wandering, a striking takes place and the outcome will be 
a miraculous issuing forth of something. Now, when Moses strikes the rock out of anger, the Lord still blesses the people and water comes from the rock. And that's miraculous. And that's amazing. And then words come from a donkey that struck in Numbers 22. God is involved with his own power and authority in both occasions. There's no Moses in this story. Balaam, in a way, is like an anti-Moses. Who nonetheless will be used by the Lord to advance his own covenant power and purposes over against the enemies who align themselves, these Moabites. For a person like Balaam, who was enamored with worldly gain, even the donkey might possess better spiritual sense than Balaam. There's something about idolatry and immorality that desensitizes One's ability to discern and delight in what is true and wise. Balaam had been warned by the living God not to go with those men to curse the Israelites. That's exactly what he set out to do. Thinking to to himself, well, I will do this particular sin. I I know this is what I was told not to do, but I'm going to get this. So for Balaam, he did a calculation and it was the wrong spiritual math. His calculation was doing this wrongdoing is worth it because of this worldly gain I get from it. But no power, no position, no honor, no acclaim among others, no financial amount is ever justifying doing what is dishonoring to God. Balaam is a fool if he thought so. Well, let's not be fools like Balaam. May it never take an angel of the Lord with a drawn sword in our path. Let's look at where our feet are going and ask, am I walking in a manner seeking to do what is wise before God? Or am I knowingly pursuing what is disobedient to God because of what I think I'm going to get? Oh, there were people who went the way of Balaam and made the errors of Balaam. And in 2 Peter and in Jude, those writers draw lessons from that. By pointing out that the tendency of Balaam isn't unique to Balaam. It's something that in the human condition sinners can resonate with. Where God has made himself known. But instead of saying what Balaam should have said. I will live and speak according to the words that God has made known. Balaam has said. So you're going to pay me to say that. And I'll get honor if I do that. Then I will do those things. Because that's what mattered more to Balaam. Worldly acclaim. And his spiritual perception was poor. And his sensitivity was calloused. The reader can notice how Balaam is warned and how he is blocked. Balaam is not just fine. But he thought he was just fine. He was like, what's wrong with this donkey? But it wasn't the donkey who was going the wrong way, doing the wrong thing. It was Balaam all along. I appreciate the words of one writer who was reflecting on this passage and said, I have often fully felt confident in the path I wanted to take, only to find my way cut short by immovable obstacles time and time again. These roadblocks, the writer says, these roadblocks along our most determined paths can inflame our impatience, anger, and embarrassment, as they did Balaam's. But could it be, the writer asks, 
That farther along some of our most determined paths are dangers that we do not see? And could it be that if our eyes were fully opened to see as God does, we would thank Him for what feels today like a painful setback? When it is actually a merciful refusal for our good? Balaam doesn't know what he thinks he knows and he doesn't see what he thinks he sees. He doesn't see what God sees before him. And the danger that lies in the wake of those rebellious steps, Balaam should trust the Lord. So if Balaam is presented as an anti-Moses, we're reminded again of the importance of that leader for the people. That the Lord guides His people and cares for His people and has made Himself known in His words. And friend, you can really trust Him. You can really trust Him. You can take His promises. You can hope in Him. And even when His mysterious providence takes you in directions through fields and vineyard paths and walls and then you say, oh my foot. You know not what you are being spared from. What mercy indeed the Lord is showing you when at the time may seem so frustrating. If you will continue to hope in Him, it will not be in vain. If you will continue to persevere and follow Him, you will see Him trustworthy in all things. Let's stand together as we pray.